Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I was nearly done writing the score. And from the minute Michael hired me, I knew that I wanted to cover my favorite Blue Oyster Cult song. I knew I wanted my friend Serge Tonkin to sing it. And I knew I wanted the rhythm section from Death Clock, Metalocalypse, mm-hmm. to play it. I didn't say any of that. <laughs> I just knew. And it's like, keep that in your pocket. That's so crazy. Yeah. That's so crazy. Um, and right toward the end of scoring, I mean, I was under the deadline. And I just thought, this is my chance, you know, to to, to try this. So I assembled the guys and I did a demo. Um and and again, just sort of telling you like where the director, Michael Doherty, and I were, where how we were on the same page. In our last meeting, I played the last set of cues for him. And then everyone was getting up to leave. And I go, hey, hang on, guys. I want to play you one more thing. <laughs> I've got this idea for the end credits. I know we haven't talked about it. Let's just take a listen. And he goes, okay. And he sits down. And I hit play on the space bar. And there's a buffer in Pro Tools of four bars that were so it's like it was like 10 seconds right the play meter starts moving and in that gap michael doherty looks me in the eye and he goes blue oyster cult (laughs) i shit you not everyone and welcome to episode six of the fourth wall i am your host griffin schiller and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals ranging from directors actors you name it this show is of course part of the playlist podcast network where you can find our weekly film discourse show along with the rest of our shows such as indie beat be real and much more whatever your fix is i'm sure we got you covered over there today i've got a really fun episode for you all. This one was an absolute blast. I had the privilege to sit down and have a lively conversation with composer Bear McCreary. Bear is having one hell of a year to say the least as he's the musical genius behind this year's Child's Play reboot and the massive summer blockbuster Godzilla King of the Monsters. Other works of Bear's consist of AMC's The Walking Dead, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., 2018's video game phenomenon God of War, Battlestar Galactica, Outlander, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and the Cloverfield Paradox, just to name a few. Bear invited us to a studio in Los Angeles where he composes all of his work, and we were able to sit down with him and discuss his love of film, his blog, which you all should definitely check out if you don't. And one of the cool things about Bear is that he was one of the last prodigies of legendary film composer Elmer Bernstein. And so we talked a little bit about that and how that's influenced his approach 
to film composition. Not only that, but we dive into working on Godzilla King of the Monsters, working on Child's Play, a lot of the other projects, and how he's created such a signature sound. Before we get started, just a few pieces of housekeeping here. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out to my friend Tyler Tompkins, who ran audio for me during this interview. And I was kind of able to reward him with a few questions here and there, since he's a big fan of bears, and he actually brought up some great points I didn't even think of, so that's why you occasionally hear his voice every now and then. And then lastly, I do want to give a quick shout out to my friend Eric Swanson. I've been meaning to do this for a few episodes, but he created the theme for The Fourth Wall, the music that we use here and there, and he really did a great job on it, so I want to thank him for that. But without further ado, let's get into this episode. Here is my conversation with Bear McCreary. It was really interesting because we were doing, just kind of like digging into you beforehand. We stumbled across your blog. Oh, which yeah. Which is, in, and you kind of have a personal connection to, uh, which I found to be really interesting. So if you want to yeah, uh, Cinematic Shrines of My Youth. Yes. Your most recent entry, I Yeah, believe. my most recent blog, yeah. Yeah, dude, I love reading that because I saw so much of myself in that writing. Thank you. Like from the very beginning, you talked about Crazy Mike's video store. Yeah, like, dude. I remember like whenever I was younger, I would make my own pilgrimage to Hollywood Video or Blockbuster. Yeah. And you talked about how you would always go to Crazy Mike's video store. And I yeah. guess, could you talk a little bit about that? Would you go there like every weekend? And Oh, absolutely every weekend. I mean, it would. It, we were sort of limited by the number of videos we could hold in our arms yeah, walking yeah. out. My, you know, my family would go and it was... Um, it was sort of the defining communal experience of my youth was either going to these movie theaters or going to Crazy Mike's video and just getting stuff and finding things. And And I wrote this blog entry called The Cinematic Shrines of My Youth that I just posted that was about the realization that I had in my last trip back to my hometown that actually every single one of these locations has gone. Um, the video store is, of course, long gone. And the last branch of uh, Crazy Mike's video actually just recently closed, which, you know, is of this recording in 2019. That's amazing mm-hmm. that a video store even made it that far. Um, and all these other movie theaters that um, that uh, I went and saw all these amazing movies when I was growing up have all um, either been sort of reclaimed by corporations or in some cases reclaimed by nature itself (laughs) where this one the best theater in town is literally like overgrown ruins with like moss bursting up through the pavement it's like you expect indiana jones to sneak through looking for like a you know what i mean like for sure yeah treasure it's like what happened there and it's like to me, there's no better metaphor for the theatrical cinematic experience of the modern generation than looking at the best theater in my town when I was a kid is literally useless. Yeah. The building is useless, you know? Yeah. And overgrown. So I sort of, you know, wrote about that and it was, um, it really resonated with a lot of people more so than I thought. I, I thought mm-hmm. it would be a blog entry that just sort of went nowhere and mm-hmm. uh, it really resonated with people and that, uh, you know, that made me happy. Yeah, yeah, because, okay, then you talked about Sunset Square Cinema, yeah. which is gone, too, and that reminded me of the theater I would go to in high school. I, I kind of grew up in a small little town in Louisiana, and I make it a mission every time I go back to visit friends there to go to that theater just, you know, for memories and nostalgia, and I guess if that theater was still around, you would probably still go there, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. Just to, you know, to bring back memories. And yeah, and, and in fact, my experience, probably like yours, yeah. um, which seems a little alien today, um, we would just go on a Friday night 
without knowing what's playing. Mm-hmm. We would just yeah. go, we'll meet up at the theater, we'll hang out, and then that communal experience of standing outside a theater and going, what do you guys want to see? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a there's a digital replication of that today. Sure, yeah. But yeah. there really was something fun about the physicality of going to a place and not knowing what you're going to find. Uh, same thing with the video store, just kind of wandering through the aisles without uh, um, any sort of sense of, of like, well, you like this, therefore you might like this. You just kind of wander around and see weird VHS box art and go, let's watch that tonight. No, I, you know, those, those are like some of the fondest memories I have of like walking into a blockbuster and like seeing totally. the, the cover art for like, I, I don't know, like Deep Blue Sea or something like right, that. And then right. you just like want to go, oh, that's interesting. Let's go check that out. Or and like, sometimes it is interesting and other times it's not. I was like, yeah, but, but that's, that's the gamble that exactly, was really fun. That's the fun part. Yeah. And the other thing is sort of like the commitment of like, all right, we're going to we're going to rent these three movies and we're going to watch them tonight. And and even if one of them's terrible, it's like it, it's hard to explain to I think a younger generation. It's like you didn't stop a movie. Oh sure, yeah. Do you know what I mean. <laughs> like if it was terrible, you just goes, "Well, this is what we committed to, guys. We're not going back to the video store." <laughs> That's, so yeah. we're watching this shit. You know, it's funny you bring that up because we uh, kind of just took on a, a venture of our own, going back and watching some like movies that we were fond of. I guess growing up as kids, and yeah. we went back and we watched both of the Ghost Rider movies. Nice, the you know Nick Cage Ghost Rider movies, and like obviously I don't think we liked them as much as we did when we were kids, but. We didn't stop them, you know. Yeah, we just yeah. we, we, we just like going. kept going. We're like, oh, yeah. maybe it gets totally. better. Or like, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and those ones have a high reward for your patience. I oh mean, yeah, <laughs> especially with with a Nick Cage movie. It's like there is no bad Nick Cage movie. Oh, it's just no, like no, yeah. It's always interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and that that's um, you know I I love that. that that sort of informed my whole sense of um, of what the cinematic art form is. Sure. You know? Yeah. And that there's there's gems even in in bad movies. Absolutely. You know, movies are just a, a fascinating thing well and the thing that i think i found most interesting uh just you know kind of doing a little bit of research is you were like you you've stated like that from the age of five you've always wanted to be a film composer and i'm curious because you, you're such a genuine fan of movies in general was there ever like a point where you wanted to make your own films or do you do you still have ambitions of oh that? that's a good question i mean that was definitely part of it i mean it was the filmmaking part of the music that that drew me mm-hmm. i mean i I love when I was a kid I loved film music. I mean and I I liked orchestral music. But you know when my mom took me to see like the you know the local, you know, university like a symphonic concert, you yeah. know, and it's like this is a lot like Star Wars but it's missing something. Right. It's you know what I mean? Magic. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's the narrative nature of the music that is drawn that I'm drawn to. Yeah. Um so absolutely, you know, and I I still mess around and make my own little short films and I I love collaborating with filmmakers and solving problems, uh, helping them solve problems that are mm-hmm. not musical, you know? So right. that part of it, um, I think is vital. And especially as I, as I talk to aspiring composers, everybody asks me like, well, how do you get, how do you get into this? And what do you, what do you, you know, what do you do? What do you, what do you study? What do you emphasize? And, mm-hmm. and in all, in all cases, the first thing I ask them is, have you scored a film? Have you collaborated with somebody? Have you, have you uh, just had any kind of collaborative experience where you're mm-hmm. trying to make music for somebody else? Which to me is the nature of what cinema is. It is, it is absolutely not an, uh, a, an auteur experience. Mm. Even when your, your director is an auteur, it's, like, it's, a, it's a huge collaboration. Mm. And I am you know, surprised at how often the younger composers go, well, no, I haven't. 
Mm. Then it's like, well, then that's more important than the music part of it. I mean, I hate right. to say that, but it it really is like being an excellent musician and being unable to communicate to a filmmaker on narrative terms. It's kind of a non-starter for being able to to do what my job is. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, even speaking to friends I know who have dabbled in film composition and whatnot, they, I mean, they just, they, they stress how different it is from just like being in a band and writing music or something For sure. like that. Yeah. And like, it, you're right, it's all about the collaborative experience and being able to talk musically is a big thing. Um, and I'm curious, for your collaborators, um, are most of them able to speak the same language so that you get on the same page or are there points where you kind of have to like work with them a little bit? Let me, let me clarify because I actually think I, I, it's a great question. Sure, You're yeah, hitting yeah. at the like fundamental issue here. <laughs> um, with my collaborators, we 100% of the time speak the same language. That's my job. And that language is not music whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And when they start talking about music, if I, I, I listen to what they have to say, but I very often dig a little deeper to try to get to the fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That fundamental truth usually boils down to only one question. And um, my mentor, Elmer Bernstein, taught me this when he underlined that it's really the only question that ever matters dealing with a filmmaker. It's the one thing they always have an answer to. So let me give you some wrong questions first. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, do you like strings? And we can talk about that for a while. Um, what do you think about this temp score? We can talk about that for a while. Um, what do you... Uh, you know, what, what do you want the do you want the tempo fast here? Do you do you want it slow? We can talk about that for a while. You're going to get the wrong answers always. The one question that you will never get the wrong answer is you ask a director or filmmaker, "What do you want the audience to feel?" I've never been led astray. A hundred percent of the time, at every cut, every frame of a film, a director can go, "Oh, well, that's easy." I want them to feel scared. Mm. This is supposed to be funny. I want them to be thinking about the subtext of what he's really saying is this. We can, you can get the, the truth because that's what a filmmaker's job is. Yeah. They're, the, they're the advocate for the audience. That's literally their only job when you boil it down. It's right. like, <laughs> what do we want the audience to feel? And then I'm going to like direct people to make the audience feel what I want them to feel. Yeah. So when you ask them that and then they go, well, let's just talk about in terms of emotion and narrative and story. Then let me go and do some music and come back and then we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. But in that way, in terms of like speaking the same language, that, to get to my earlier point, the language is cinema, mm-hmm. not music. And, and more often than not, unless you're dealing with a filmmaker who's versed in that language of music, even talking about music you're 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 out on a limb because they're they don't quite know what the words are right yeah do you know yeah. what i mean no i totally i totally and and, yeah. um, and it's and it's very often the only part of the filmmaking experience that they are this ignorant about meaning they can probably go to their dp and tell them the kind of lens they have in mind they can they can probably talk to the editor in terms of what kind of cuts they want, what kind of cutting rhythm they want. They can talk to production design. They can talk to actors. They can probably even talk to the sound mixers. But when it comes to music, there it, it's just the thing that is so specific. It really takes its own lifetime to learn yeah. 
that um, you kind of need to you kind of need to make them feel better. Oh sure, you yeah, come to yeah. them and say, "Let's just talk about the drama, man." And then it's like, "Oh, thank God." Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, no, that's that's so fascinating because uh, you're right. When you boil down and and the music. Uh, you know, the, the, it's such an integral part in conveying the emotions of the film. So it's like when you can get them to get the the, the emotions out, you know, with, what they're trying to convey, it just makes your job a whole lot easier, and it makes the the process, I assume, a lot less intimidating than what what it would be otherwise. For sure, because then then you're all on the same page. We, right. We want the audience to feel this, and then and and then you get into the discussions of music, which I like to begin with. Starting with the emotion, let me try something and mm-hmm. then let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because every filmmaker has a different frame of reference for what these things are. Yeah. Um, for some people, you, you know, their version of what emotion is could be like just the most subtle little piano note. And they're like, whoa, 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 go easy, buddy. Mm-hmm. That's like way over the top. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. then for other filmmakers, it's like, the you know like for example when I was doing Godzilla King of the Monsters I mean everything scaled up yeah so that I realized like what for any other film would be like the biggest thing ever yeah. that's the starting point right. for this film and we just get bigger and bigger from there yeah, but that yeah. took you know you you have to learn where where filmmakers comfort zone is oh sure well and you know you mentioned Godzilla I do want to get into Godzilla a little bit I mean I have pages here of things I want to get into but I'll we'll try to answer quicker I, I, I give long answers no no that's fine I love it it's great well it's I think the thing that we found most interesting was your first um, experience with Godzilla wasn't even a Godzilla film it was yeah. in Pee Wee Herman totally you know, which, you know and Danny Elfman being one of your your idols and whatnot and so yeah. I think you uh, found that most interesting because of your love of Danny yeah, Elfman yeah obsessed with yeah. Danny Elfman awesome you're another Elfman fan yeah it was so fascinating we were um so, like, can you talk about how that that score attracted you to Godzilla? Like, what about the... Well, uh, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was, a you know, sort of a, one of those touchstone films for me that made me want to work in film. It made me want to write music for film. And, 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 and it was also Danny Elfman's first studio film score. So in many ways, you know, I've been a fan of his for his entire career because it was like the first thing he put out into the world in a big way was the first thing I found when I was like six. And I just, you know, followed his career ever since. Um, And sort of tangentially that that Godzilla has this memorable appearance in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not only Godzilla, but King Ghidorah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... uh, that was, uh, you know, that was amazing. And so as a kid, I, I flagged those creature designs mm-hmm. and found them again um, probably in the early to mid-90s was when, I, was when I realized like, oh my God, there's a whole range of films mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that this character uh, comes from. Um, and so, of course, you know, that all pays off uh, 30-some-odd years later, 35 yeah. years later, when, when I get to score a Godzilla film. Yeah, and it wasn't just you got to score it, but you got to create new themes in the Godzilla universe, which I thought was incredible. But you're creating new themes, you're bringing back old themes. Um, and so I have to imagine that, as a whole, was daunting. But w- was it difficult to shape something that you know still felt like it belonged to the classic Godzilla monsterverse, but was sort of like its own thing for for what the film needed to be in a modern way yes you are you are in 
in, intuitive in that there's a certain amount of pressure that comes yeah, with yeah. reinventing something that is is beloved by so many people mm-hmm. and that has meaning to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a situation that I've I've ended up in several times. Yeah. Um, uh, most notably, when I put my own spin on on Battlestar Galactica, on uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, these are all projects that I thought, wow, there's this whole other version of this that has meaning for me and other people. And and the question is, what do I do? What do I bring? In the case of Godzilla uh, uh, and, and King of the Monsters, uh, I ultimately did what I always do, which is I, I kind of have to ignore all of that mm-hmm. and just do what I think the film at hand requires. Um, and, uh, and in that case, you know, I had access to um, all of the old themes. I mean, you're talking six decades worth. So that was the first um, step was sort of deciding, is this going to be an entirely patchwork score? I'm, I'm, I'm going to write no new themes and just use old stuff. Um, or is it going to be entirely new? I don't have to use any of this stuff. And and where we ended up was sort of um, with each monster theme, with each character theme, um, it was sort of a case of like, may the best theme win. You know, you know what I mean? Like the themes themselves were really battling it out. They really were. I was like, here's this one. Here's my version. Here's the you know the classic Godzilla theme, the Alexander Desplat version from 2014. The yeah. David Arnold theme from 1998. Like, yeah. You know, whatever. Let's see what what would be fun. And um, and there it was. It was so clear. I mean, it wasn't. Honestly, it wasn't a difficult decision. I mean, I. Um, I showed uh, the director Michael Doherty the scene when Godzilla rises from the uh, from the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And I showed it to him. Uh, I did three or four versions. I don't even remember if I showed him any of the others. I just showed him the one that in- incorporated the uh, Akira Ufukube theme yeah. from 1954. And uh, scene ends, and I look over at him. He's got tears oh, pouring I can't down even, his face. I mean, like I just watch literally just talking about it right now. I have chills because I'm vividly. Just like I can see that yeah. part of the film because it's so with the music and just the visuals, everything it's astonishing. And I remember the the, the room was silent, and uh, one of the producers of the film, who's already thinking ahead, like he, we all looked at Michael. Michael did the same thing, <laughs> and the producer just said, "I don't even remember if he said it to me or if he just muttered it under his breath." He's like. Time to call Toho. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I was man. like, all right. So we know like the Godzilla theme is a, is a, is, is a yeah. slam dunk. The yeah. Mothra theme. Um, and I even wrote a theme for Mothra that I thought was pretty cool. But it was like compared to the Yuji Koseki theme, mm-hmm. I was like, that's a winner, you know. Um, in the case of Rodan, uh, it was more about, uh, it was more like a real estate issue. Rodan's sequence is so loud so ungodly chaotic yeah yeah that the old rodan theme has this like majesty to it has this cool melodic line and it just i would just it just needed something that was more like heavy metal mm-hmm. but in an orchestral context yeah, like yeah like i just wanted the 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 orchestral equivalent of someone screaming at my face at full volume <laughs> so i was like i got this horn thing and then i brought in this latin percussion and it was just it was just the clear for winner for this context, it's not a right. better theme melodically than the old uh, the old theme, but it just worked better in this film, right. you know. And then the Ghidorah theme, like I came up with something super cool. I'm not gonna lie, I was just like, like I I I found these this idea of doing these Buddhist monks chanting this 
um, these patterns in groups of three. And I was just like, this is so spiritual and cool. Mm -hmm. And it's so different um, than the old takes on Monster Zero where it's like, let's let's make and and my my philosophy was making each one different, making each theme so distinct that in a couple of seconds you can identify like, oh, that's Ghidorah. You know what I mean? So it was sort of it was a it was an organic process of just throwing paint on canvas and seeing what worked. Okay, I mean that's just that's not, I mean literally the paint. I'm looking at the poster right now that is like a <laughs> painting. Um, uh, so one one more thing about Godzilla. I, I want working with uh, Serge uh, Tankian from uh, System of a Down. Yeah, was that your call? Or? Oh, totally my call. Okay. Oh, I did that <laughs> without even telling them. Oh wow. Oh okay. So in fact, at the end of the film. Uh, I was nearly done writing the score. And from the minute Michael hired me, I knew that I wanted to cover my favorite Blue Oyster Cult song. I knew I wanted my friend Serge Tonkian to sing it. And I knew I wanted the rhythm section from Death Clock, Metalocalypse, Mm -hmm. to play it. I didn't say any of that. (laughs) I just knew. And it's like, keep that in your pocket. That's so crazy. That's so crazy. Um, And right toward the end of scoring, I mean, I was under the deadline. And I just thought, this is my chance, you know, to... To, to try this. So I assembled the guys and I did a demo. Um, and, and again, just sort of telling you like where the director, Michael Doherty and I were, where, how we were on the same page in our last meeting, I played the last set of cues for him. And then everyone was getting up to leave and I go, Hey, hang on guys. I want to play you one more thing. <laughs> I've got this idea for the end credits. I know we haven't talked about it. Let, let's just take a listen. And he goes, okay. And he sits down. And I hit play on the space bar. And there's a buffer in Pro Tools of four bars that were, so it's like, it was like 10 seconds, mm-hmm. right? The play meter starts moving. And in that gap, Michael Doherty looks me in the eye and he goes, Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> <laughs> I shit you not. Oh my and I was God. Like, oh, I like held my breath. And then the chanting guys came in and then the guitar riff starts. And it was like, holy shit. There it was. That, yeah. And Serge voice, uh, Serge's voice was in there. He yeah. came in and did a demo for me. Um, and that was essentially it. I mean, the song from there to the final mix went through almost no distinguishable changes. Wow. Um, so it was sort of like everybody just heard it and thought, that's amazing. So to me, <laughs> it was a- like, it was one of those things where it's, it's the nature of the collaborative relationship that makes it possible. Mm-hmm. Had I brought it up early on, they probably would have said, no, just do the score. Mm-hmm. Had I even mentioned it a week earlier when I was going to do it and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do, I still think a responsible producer would have said, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, we're, a- we're in London in two <laughs> weeks, dude. Uh, cues aren't finished. Um, we'll get some, but that's a good idea. Yeah, Thanks. We'll yeah. get some cool producer to come in and do it. Which was ultimately my fear, like the longer this goes on, it's such an obviously good idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. Legendary's just going to go do it. Uh-huh. So I was kind of counting on them just being a little behind. Uh, and then I thought, I'm just going to do it and present it um, and, uh, and see what happens. You know, which is always my, which is always my philosophy, that mm-hmm. like sometimes talking about stuff um, is, is uh, I did the same thing on Child's Play with uh, this song I did with Mark Hamill, where, yeah. where which ended up as the end credits of Child's Play, right. where I was just like, hey guys, check this thing out. Like, we didn't discuss it. It was just this fun idea, but once you get into a rhythm with people, I, I like, I mean, they know, it's like, look, if I play you something and you don't like it, it's fine. I'm always prepared for that, 
But if I swing for the fences and you know, like we're, we're on the same page on a lot of things, it'll, it gives me the chance to, to come up with something daring. And that's what's to me the most fun about those kind of relationships. So that is a long winded way of saying doing Godzilla, the blue oyster cult cover with Serge Tonkian was, uh, was my idea and not sanctioned or approved by anybody. You when just I, slipped when I it did. in there. Yeah. Just threw it in there and said, what do you guys think? That's absolutely insane because it's such the, it's such a perfect and uh, punctual statement, you know, at the end of that film. And it's well, and ultimately I think that's what drew me to it. And, and what the producers even kind of came around to later as they continued to test the film with the song in place. And they pulled me aside and they were like, People love that song they, and they don't know it. They don't, you know, if you're like, it's a kind of deep cut. It's no, like, yeah, it's a no, B-side I, Blue Oyster Cult single from 1977. Well, it's funny you mention that because I was actually familiar with it because I have memories of driving the car with my dad as he's blasting it and literally exactly. singing the songs. And exactly. I'm, like, I'm like, oh, this isn't a popular Blue Oyster Cult song? Like, yeah. what? <laughs> I mean, and, and to say it's like, so to even talk about Blue Oyster Cult in the mainstream, you got to go, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah. More cowbell, those guys. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Okay, <laughs> then go. Now they had like seven other famous singles, and then maybe down in the number ten, there's Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. So it's such a deep cut, but it meant a lot to me. The producer pulled me aside and said, like, people that don't know that song are coming up to us and going, "That song is amazing. What is that?" Yeah, and it yeah. made me realize, like, we've brought it into the modern era to the point that they just think it's a cool song about Godzilla, right? You know, and and also the way Michael's film ends in such an operatic, lyrical, soaring, like Wagnerian sense. You've watched an opera. To go into score from there would be to continue that vibe and make it be like, you just watched the grandest movie ever. (laughs) When in fact, what you really watched was like kind of a rock and roll fantasy (laughs) without rock and roll. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So to go from the soaring choir and orchestra to like, no, we're doing metal now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Metal with taiko drums. Like it's, it, it, it it lets the movie end with a degree of swagger that I think is fun. Oh, you know my God, I mean? yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, my God, just talking about that, that's that's a lot of fun. But I, you did mention Child's Play, I do want to get into that. I think you had a lot of yeah, questions. Yeah, so even now we're talking, uh, there's been somewhat of a drought with memorable musical scores in the horror genre. And with Child's Play, not only did you manage to make a memorable score, but you brought back the tradition of creating an iconic theme for an iconic character. Can you talk about that process? Well, it's interesting because uh, in in that case, I, I was in a weird um, I was in a weird position because um, I at first didn't want to do the movie. I I, I was I was uh, this is one of those cases where I thought um, this character has such a legacy that um, I wasn't sure what I would what I would bring to it especially if it's sort of like the kind of supernatural like voodoo um um you know takeover of this of this thing and it's you know like i would just sort of like man that 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 is that franchise is so far down the road i don't i, I don't know where i would start so they sent it to me they sent me the film and right from the get-go i i started getting ideas because it wasn't that it was it was a science fiction thriller, technically. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's, it's a, a lot sci-fi. of different things. But I mean, there, yeah. like, and especially the first half hour, I was like, I, I, I spoke to the director, Lars Klevberg, and I was like, I, I was stunned because it's like this first half hour plays like the first half hour of AI, 
which is my favorite <laughs> part of that movie. Like, like if the whole movie was that, it would almost be a better movie. It's yeah, so yeah. scary. Yeah. Uh, the little doll robot that's like, are you my mommy? Like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's really creepy. And, and it also plays like Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and elements of E.T. Like, it's basically just like, it's got, it's got these Spielbergian influences that I, I, yeah. I, I was like, can we go like super emotional and like melodic? And, you know, I, I started getting these ideas and I, and I basically, I, um, I basically told them like, this is what I would want to do. Um, and, and I had to kind of frame it. Like, I am so excited about this, about doing a toy orchestra and like creepy vocals and having a theme for the doll, the, the buddy doll song be the theme. For, I basically laid out everything I wanted to do. And I was like, if you guys are excited about this, I'm good to go. <laughs> if you're not yeah. excited about this, if you want like sort of modern horror remake, sound design, orchestral garbage, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it, it, I felt so strongly about it. Thankfully, and, and again, it's sort of like finding your collaborative partners. They were way into it. And yeah. in fact, they pushed me even further. I mean, my, my first pass at some of the cues was more conservative than what ended up on screen. Lars wow. Clever would be like, throw in more of the little girl choirs. Yeah. Throw in more of the toy pianos. And like the producers loved all that stuff. Mark Hamill came on board and he loved it and he wanted to do more with it. Um, so it was uh, it was just an incredibly fun collaborative uh, experience where everybody was on the same page, which is we all want to have fun with this material. We all want to create something memorable and unique. And I think that's really what you need in that environment, whereas, um, you know, most of the horror remakes that have come out in the last 15 years of movies from the 70s, 80s, maybe even early 90s. I'm generalizing horribly no, sure, here, yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah, sure your yeah. comments are going to be like, what about this? <laughs> I'm just going to say, most, <laughs> most of, of them, them, Yes, yeah. the music is not as memorable in the remake no. as it was in the original. And it's because you're talking about like Halloween, The Omen, mm-hmm. uh, Friday the 13th. Like there are, there, are, there are horror scores that are so iconic, and Child's Play is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that without a full commitment from the entire production team in the studio to go like go out on a limb. Mm-hmm. And I think it was also the daring sort of comedic messed up emotional texture of this movie mm-hmm. that gave us the freedom to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's the fun of it. Um, and if you can't try to make something melodic, like I just feel like there's a lot of horror movies that, that, sound sort of just dissonant but audiences are just we're just used to it man. well yeah we're just I used mean, to it that, that, that's the thing it's like you, you, it's it's almost like they've relied more on sound design and just like the, these big loud noises as opposed to like traditional melodic for sure um, scores also yeah. like full disclaimer uh, I realized I was like oh man I'm a little guilty of this I did the show Damien the mm-hmm. spinoff oh, of yeah, The Omen yeah, yeah. and uh and even in that, like we had choir, I had like the whispering vocals, the chanting demonic uh, choir. We, we uh, but still, it's like the most melodic parts of the score. Like I got to use the Jerry Goldsmith theme. Yeah, and like, did I come up with something better than that? Absolutely not. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. no way. Yeah. So yeah. it's. I'm not saying it's like e- it's easier said than done. Right. Um. So it's it's the challenge of of rebooting uh, these things. But but my my final thought on that is like credit goes to Lars for envisioning a version of 
child's play that is sufficiently different that it allows us to have these kind of freedoms, you know? And I know there are fans that would have been happier if it was called, like, Spooky Doll, the movie. Like, it gets to the point where you go, well, why call it it Child's Play? And it's sort of like, I understand on a certain level, but it's like the fact that it's that different means we can have some fun with it. And and to me, those remakes that are different, um, I mean, you look at The Blob from 88, you look at the um, John Carpenter's The Thing, these are all remakes that people don't even remember are remakes because we love them mm-hmm. and uh and they were all they all just took a lot of liberties with the material so i'd like to think in one day our, our version of child's play might have that kind of cult yeah uh, i, I think you know? i think it's already got oh, yeah. the cult cult following just from like you know the, the fans out there you know championing it and whatnot but um i i think it's interesting just listening to you talk about like the you know classic influence but you you which you are certainly influenced by because you study under uh, elmer bernstein and stuff yeah. and, but you you also approach using like these classical sensibilities in a modern context which i think is one of the reasons why your work is so distinct um has that been something that like you've just always tried to do or is it do you think it's just because of the you know the kind of like era we're living in right now that's a really insightful question and i'm i'm actually not even sure it it is sort of the way my brain is programmed like i really love the the sort of muscular modernity that is possible with production today mm-hmm. um and in many ways, like, I'm just going to be, like, super critical and honest. It's like, I love listening to old uh, John Williams, uh, Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, my heroes, that stuff from the 80s and 90s. But it's like, what is the recording quality? The punchiness, the the sort of, like, there's so much, there's such a wider range that's possible today that to not embrace that, to me, is just sort of like leaving emotion on the table that you, that you could you could you could draw from. Um, so even like like to me, I think the most symphonic, purely classical score that I've done recently would be um, the Professor and the Madman, which was a period piece, um, a really cool movie uh, about the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary. Shockingly dramatic, considering <laughs> the subject matter. Right, of course. Um, starring uh, Sean Penn and Mel Gibson and Natalie Dormer, and it. And it took place, uh, it takes place between like 1880 and um, 1915. So it's, it's fully a period piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but even that, it, it, which is very orchestral, I use some ambient synths. I use some, some modern textures because it's, it is a movie in 2019 and I kind of wanted it to sound that way. Yeah. Even though it's very melodic and in a lot of ways it's it's very old school. So I don't know that I could shut that part of my brain off even if I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I think one of the ones that I know it definitely comes to your mind, but for me, uh, which is like the almost like a perfect example of this is, is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, um, awesome. Because you, it, it feels like weirdly, well, not weirdly given the context of the film, but it feels very Bernard Herrmann. Totally. But yeah. in a different sort of way. Cause, and, and you mentioned using the, what, what was it called? Yeah, the, the blaster beam. Blaster beam. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. I was just wondering what, what was kind of like the process that led you to that instrumentation? I've been a fan of blaster beam ever since I was a kid and I got, what became one of my favorite soundtracks ever, the score to Star Trek The Motion Picture, mm-hmm. which was filled with blaster beam. I mean, if you go but go back and watch that movie, when we're in outer space, Jerry Goldsmith has Craig Huxley hitting this blaster beam. Um, 
and uh, it creates these otherworldly sounds. It's sort of like a lap steel guitar that's 18 feet long. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an acoustic instrument that has electric pickups in it. It's capable of playing pitches that are lower than any other acoustic instrument. It goes lower than a bass, lower than a piano. And uh, when I got on 10 Cloverfield Lane, I, I kept thinking about like, what is, what's, what's something I can do with a score that makes it unique? That is 100% a Bernard Herrmann philosophy. I mean, yeah. he just built yeah. orchestras out of the most weird collections ever. In no way did he feel like, well, I must have strings, winds, and brass, right. and maybe I'll have something else. Um, and uh, and I, I, I've always adored his music, especially his fantasy stuff. Yeah. So I thought, um, I thought about Blaster Beam because of the subterranean aspects of 10 Cloverfield Lane. We're underground, and John Goodman is this large imposing force just the way he towers over Michelle in that uh, movie I kept thinking of like bass sounds deep underground sounds and I was like oh my god what a what about the blaster beam you know what I mean like I've been <laughs> yeah, waiting for yeah. this my whole life yeah you get to use it yeah. so I found the guy the guy from Star Trek the motion picture Craig Huxley who <laughs> built the blaster beam and I reached out to him and and I said hey I want, I've got this film I'm doing with J.J. Abrams like I want to feature Blaster Beam what do you think mm-hmm. and uh, you know he he was very enthusiastic I, he took me over, over to his um, his house and showed me the Blaster Beam and we uh, started recording stuff and I asked him uh, when was the last time this was used on a film score and he had to stop and think about it and he was like 35 years Jesus. like oh the late God. 80s might have been the last time he'd ever used it on a film score um, and it was used in Star Trek 2 James Horner used it um a little there, uh-huh. um, but it, it it gave me that otherworldly, interesting, cool texture. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, one other side note that I just want to like, I, I think the Clover, the two Cloverfield films that I did, Ten mm-hmm. Cloverfield Lane and Cloverfield Paradox, are interesting examples of of what your previous question was. Mm-hmm. Where on the surface they are very Bernard Hermony orchestral scores, mm-hmm. but underneath. Um, the production that I put into those is is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Like you could mute the orchestra tracks and you have this like really pounding, intense synth score yeah. underneath it. I mean, yeah. it's like the 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 main title of um, Cloverfield Paradox is like massive. Oh yeah, but yeah. but it's interesting because I I I put on top of all that just a, a really pure Bernard Herrmann kind of sensibility yeah um, the Walking Dead main title is yeah. similar it's very similar it's like, I, yeah. it's like okay there's these totally Bernard Herrmann strings mm-hmm. uh, psycho kind of moving strings but like under you could mute that and you've got a, a modern like cool ambient sound designy kind mm-hmm. of Trent Reznor-y kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. been kind of fun I I, I I haven't really thought about that as like, is that like my MO? But but it is something I've done a lot. It's interesting, you know? yeah. Well, and it's funny you bring up The Walking Dead. I think that was the first time both of us uh, like first noticed your name as being part of like the credits. It's where we first really oh, were cool. introduced to your work. Because uh, I think Battlestar was a little before our yeah, time, yeah. right? Yeah, Sarah Connor Chronicles. Sarah, yeah, 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 yeah. But it was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and when you create a theme, is that like the first thing you conceptualize? Or does it come from like the music of the movie or show you're working on? Well, it's on. F- that's a funny question. M- most of the time, it's always the first thing I start with. Oh, for a while, okay. Um, because to me, it, it's it's the DNA from which the entire score uh, grows. Yeah. Um, like the, 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 the theme I wrote for Da Vinci's Demons, um, I spent weeks on that. And it was this, it actually ended up being an elaborate 
palindrome because Da Vinci, as a real-life historical figure, could write forwards and backwards. Mm-hmm. And okay. if you take the Da Vinci's Demons main title and reverse it, it sounds the same. Mm. So uh, that took forever. But I was like, that gets to the essence of Leonardo Da Vinci. Like I, His theme has to be like, it's got to have a hidden message in it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course. So it took yeah, forever. Yeah. Um, the one time, I can't think of another time, the one time on a television situation where the theme eluded me was The Walking Dead. Oh, God. I had no idea. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to dive in. (laughs) So I started scoring the pilot. I think the first scene I wrote was when Rick wakes up and he goes outside. I think the second scene I wrote was when he comes, uh, it was a cue called Rick's Despair when he comes home and his family's gone. Really Mm -hmm. beautiful emotional cue. Then I started working my way toward the end of the episode. And at the end of the episode, it's, it's a 90-minute pilot with 30 seconds of action. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. At the end, he gets attacked by a walker crowd, and he ends up crawling under a tank. And he crawls inside the tank. Should I say spoiler alert for an episode no, that's 10 years old? No, this is season one. No, absolutely not. It's going into what? Like, it's, it's yeah. 10th season or something? I know, yeah. <laughs> so he, and he ends, up, he ends up stuck there. But there's this sequence when he's crawling under the tank. Yeah. So I'm like... I'm watching all these walkers um, clawing at him and he's just desperately um, clawing his way under the tank. They're inches away. He's, he's just completely screwed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's a really tense scene. And I started hearing the string thing and I, I switch over to like a tremolo string patch just to sketch it and I'm like, I just look at it and I go, and I stop and I go, holy shit, that's the main <laughs> I was like, I just knew it. And I, so I go, I, I go, forget this scene. And I go, and I just, I just closed the video and I just started exploring that. And like an hour later, yeah. it was done. Yeah. And I sent it to Frank Darabont and I was like, am I crazy? Like, I think, <laughs> like, I, I think this might be it. And, and it's also like the Godzilla song. Like I worked with Frank on every second of that score, mm. except for the main title. It was like, yeah, that's great. And we sent it to Gail Ann Hurd and she was like, yeah, that's great. And then I was like, send it to AMC and they're like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> just you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. It's like, it was one of those funny moments where um, uh, I just, I went from not having any idea what the title would be to stumbling upon it and knowing it instantly. Yeah. And I yeah. think if you listen, I think when I went back and finished that scene, I still kept that idea. I think it's still in there. Yeah. Like I don't use that melody in the score very often. I no, mean, no, no, no. Like two or three times. Mm. But, um, but yeah, that, that's that's where it came from. Interesting. Oh, that's so fascinating. And it's just like the the craziest things. You'll just be like, you, it, it, you're right. It does, a lot of and a lot of it does stem from the imagery, and you can kind of just like get these sounds moving in your head. Well, and it's also to me, it, it's the indescribable part of the art form. Like. And and it's also what makes composers so distinct. Yeah. Any composer you hire that has experience probably has a skill set. And certainly if they've got a track record, you know they have a skill set. They know how to make a scene work. They know how to interact with the filmmaker. But there is this like indescribable thing that like what makes one person look at a scene and go, you know what that needs is this. Mm -hmm. You know, like... What made Jerry Goldsmith look at Gremlins and go, I'm going to bring in a siren from an old <laughs> fire truck from the 20s that goes, yeah. I'm going to put it in the room with the orchestra. Like, 
I swear to you, no other person would have done that. No, no I completely no agree. No one, no one would, would have done, done that. that. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, or uh, you know, what made Bernard Herman go like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use, uh, I'm gonna use for like, I don't know, the day the earth stood still. It's like I'm gonna use two theremins, some brass, vibraphones, marimba, and uh, two organs and a pipe organ. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's that's what Bernard Herman is doing, you know. Um, and, and from there, if you like had hired Elmer Bernstein or Henry Mancini or, or any of the other guys working at that point, you said to them, this is your ensemble, they might have come up with a score like Bernard right. Herman did. It's from there, from that initial idea, it's skill. But that's what's so fun, you know, it's like, it's that weird, undescribable instinct that, that, right. that, that someone will, will come up with some weird idea. And to me that, and, and I can't explain how that happens or why that happens, but it's, it's the fun part. For well, me. and I, th- I think it's, it roots it in the film. It, it, ma- it makes the music feel more authentic, which is something I also notice with your work is there's, there's a real authenticity. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the first things that comes to mind is, is Battlestar Galactica just because of how non-traditionally sci-fi it is. Like yeah. it is, it is the exact opposite of what you would expect from something like that show. Um, and so I think it it just it, it enhances what you're watching even more because it feels like it's it's music and it's sounds that are rooted in that world, you know. Totally. I mean, and Battlestar uh, Galactica that was absolutely the philosophy, um, and you know, and admittedly there was just a huge factor um, that was my um, my naivete. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I was 24. I had I, I had just done a bunch of student films. It was my first job. I didn't know how other people did TV. I didn't know how other people did movies. I was just mm-hmm. like, this is how I would do this. And like, this is the kind of stuff I want to hear. And like, I'm Scotch-Irish and Armenian. So it's like, Duduk and bagpipes, you know? Like, <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, as I look back on it now, like, I think the show... The show benefited from yeah. my lack of experience in a weird way. I mean, they got lucky that I could make a deadline, mm-hmm. but it was sort of like, and and producers deserve all the credit for saying we don't want the orchestral traditional sound. Mm-hmm. From that point on, they were like, we don't know what we want, mm-hmm. and that's where it was. It was a fun experience for me to sort of go, okay, it's not that. So then, anything else is on the table, yeah. like Middle Eastern singing, Balinese gamelan, like. Bob Dylan heavy metal, like (laughs) literally anything. Uh, And of course, orchestral sounds did ultimately weave their way back into the score um, as the show went on. But, but that really did inform, I think my, my philosophy moving forward, which which is that, um, you know, you use the word authenticity for, for me, it's like, it's voice. It's, it's having something to say and, and saying it boldly yeah um which is what all of my heroes did you know and so to me that's that's the fun part of it and and when you find collaborators that are open to that um as i mentioned you know godzilla or or child's play or or um or uh mcgee on rim of the world i mean right that yeah was that was so fun yeah i mean these were all collaborations where they just i came at them with these like crazy ideas and yeah and, and a lot of times the idea is it's like everybody's life's about to get more complicated. <laughs> it's like, let's get Mark Hamill to sing or like, let's, we're going to do an orchestral score even though there's no budget for an orchestra. And it's right. just like the idea speaks for itself, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. people get excited about it. And um, 
so in that way it's like that that's the fun of it is looking for people that are sort of like passionate about it like i am yeah yeah for sure i know we got to start wrapping it up here i mean i could go into god of war all day long just because that's nuts well and knowing that you're a big video game fan as well is kind of cool with that one but i want to touch on uh upcoming projects and what kind of stuff we can sort of expect from you what kind of stuff you can talk about um i know you have uh, a horror movie coming out soon called eli horror movie called eli is hitting netflix in a couple months Mm -hmm. um it's really cool movie yeah i uh uh i highly recommend checking it out um cool score and um i also have a new show coming out called snowpiercer Oh, you're, okay. You're doing the music for Snowpiercer. I'm doing the music for Snowpiercer. Okay, cool. And uh, this show, um, the score is super cool, and the show, the show is awesome. Yeah. Like I, I, um, I am so impressed with uh, with the showrunners and the writers taking this contained idea and cracking it open across a long form um, medium mm-hmm. like television. Um, so it's it's really exciting, and mm-hmm. I think fans of the movie fans of the genre um, are, are going to freak out. Like, t- to me, God, I don't want to go out on a limb, but it's like, <laughs> you know, the sort of like gritty sci-fi television storytelling, I feel like, obviously I'm biased, Battlestar Galactica kind of raised the bar mm-hmm. and many shows have been trying to like claim that mantle and and Snowpiercer is the first one I've watched where I'm like, wow, this... This reminds me of that. You know wow, what I mean? Okay. Like when I saw those first few episodes of Battlestar, you get to about episode four or five and you're like, I am hooked on this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And like Snowpiercer is the same. So I don't want to build it up too much, hey, but you know? it's super cool, man. I'm super excited about it. No, for sure. Uh, can you, God of War 2, anything? Uh, maybe, I, maybe. I, I have, I will, I'm excited to learn about it when you guys do. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know anything. My, my last one here. Um, Godzilla versus King Kong. Are you involved in any? I am not involved. You're not. So I am excited to see it uh, when uh, when it comes out. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Barrett. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This is fun. Well, there you have it, guys. That was my conversation with composer Bear McCreary. Thanks again to Bear for allowing us to visit him in his studio in Los Angeles. It was an absolute delight. He's honestly one of the most exciting composers to watch in the business today just because of the diverse body of work he has and how much he's able to tackle and how great the end results continue to be. Music for Godzilla King of the Monsters and Child's Play is available now and if you haven't listened to either of those, definitely be sure to do so. And I believe Godzilla King of the Monsters is actually available to watch on digital. So if you haven't seen the film, now's the perfect opportunity to check it out. It is uh, is basically, as Bear put it, a rock opera in video form. But the most important thing is I want to hear from you all. I want to know what your favorite Bear McCreary score is down in the comments section of wherever you're listening to this episode. And be sure to subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network for more episodes of The Fourth Wall, along with the rest of our diverse film-centric catalog 
whatever your fix is, I'm sure we got you covered. And if you want to take it a step further and you feel so inclined, we'd love it if you drop us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts as it greatly helps the show out, helps us get noticed, and it lets me know what you're all loving and what you think we can improve upon. I don't quite have a guest lined up for next week, but I'm working on getting some It Chapter 2 interviews that I think you all are going to love. So hopefully that comes to fruition. Fingers crossed. As always, guys, thanks again for your support. I really appreciate it. If you like me and you like what I have to say, you can give me a follow on Twitter at Griff Schiller. All right, that's going to do it for this interview, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.